You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. So we're joined today by Nitsana Darshan Leitner, who's an Israeli activist and attorney. As a founder and director of the Israel Law Center, Sharat Hadin, based outside Tel Aviv, she has represented hundreds of terror victims in lawsuits worldwide. She's also the author of the new book, Harpoon, Inside the Covert War Against Terrorism's Money Masters. Welcome, and thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Uh, thank you, Vince, for inviting me. It's so exciting to be in the Spy Museum. <laughs> we appreciate you taking the time. <laughs> I want to ask about this book because uh, it just came out, and, and it, it's a book that would have been difficult to, tr- to try to write before now because a lot of what's in it, a lot of the story had been secret until relatively recently. Um, can you talk a little bit about how the process to declassifying some of this and why it took so long to do? Right. Um, so, first of all, just a little bit background by myself. Mm-hmm. I'm the president of Surat Adin Israel Law Center. This is a civil rights organization based in Israel that fights terrorism in courtrooms. We simply file lawsuits against their organizations and their financial patrons. Um, and in the course of our work, we were working with... Uh, the unit in the Mossad that tracks uh, terror financing. Uh, we've been working with them for 15 years, and we were familiar with the operations that they did because some of them involved us. So when we wanted to uh, write the book, we had the knowledge. We just needed to uh, clear it up. Right. And that was a process. We had to go through the uh, censorship in uh, Israel, um, and as a permission to publish the book, uh, quite frankly, we were very doubtful that the censor will let us publish this book. Um, but uh, surprisingly, they agreed, uh, not only agreed, they worked with us to uh, go through it. And um, they had to clear it up with the Mossad and the Shin Bet and the intelligence in the, uh, in the IDF and all the uh, security and services there. 
uh, and everybody had his own comments, right. and everybody had yeah. His a lot own of our listeners will be very familiar with how the process works in the United States, where if you're writing about or have been involved in any of the agencies, you've got to go to each individual agency, and you're Precisely. dealing here with. I mean, I think the misperception again. We have a very educated audience, but even some may not know that there are multiple intelligence agencies inside of Israel. Course. Yeah. Um, the Mossad gets all the news, but they're not all doing all the work, especially well, in this case. Well, yes. Yeah. The Mossad is equal to the uh, CIA yeah. here, and the Shin Bet is equal to the FBI. And then you have the military intelligence, and then you have the National Security Agency. You have quite mm-hmm. a bit to go through. Um, but since it was, it is a, a pro-Israeli book and uh, has a strong message of uh, for other Western countries how to fight terrorism in a new, provocative way, innovative way, the uh, censor agreed to publish the book. Yeah, as I was reading through it, I'm like counting the different agencies that were mentioned, and I'm like, oh, this shouldn't be bad. It's only a couple, and then there's like one sentence with Unit 8200. I'm like, oh, there's another one that you've got to deal with. Um, because, again, in the United States, if you just mention somebody, you've got to go through that process yeah. and get them to sign off on it. So for a lot of our listeners that don't know some of the history, really at the height of terrorist attacks across several decades, 80s, 90s, early 2000s, there were very few people in Israel at the highest level, certainly within the IDF or within the intelligence community, thinking that money was kind of a key issue for fighting terrorism. But at the same time, there were serious problems. I mean, the history of this time is just suicide bombing after suicide bombing after suicide bombing. And I'm not going to use the word heavy-handed, but the the military options to prevent this didn't seem to be working very well. Right, right. Um, You know, terrorism uh, in Israel uh, did not start in the first intifada. It was always there. Uh, but uh, after the uh, Oslo Accords were signed uh, with the PLO and Israel and they created the Palestinian Authority, uh, we were supposed to get some peace, right. some arrangement that now the Palestinians will have their own uh, authority. And uh, let's see from there how they go. But instead, we got wave of terrorism. We got suicide bombing, we got uh, uh, missile attacks, we got uh, stabbings in the streets, we got drive-by shootings and ambushes, and and people were getting killed on a daily basis. And then you're really getting very frustrated because how do you fight that organization that are inside you? Right. I mean, you turn, you gave over some land to the Palestinian Authority to take over and to control, but the majority is still under your control. And it was almost impossible. They, the terrorists living among you. So the, um, the idea came, uh, and it was initiated by Mayor Dagan, the former head of the Mossad, uh, to try to go after the infrastructure of the terror organizations. Because if you cannot pinpoint them one by one, perhaps you can just demolish the, uh, their infrastructure. At the time, tens of millions of dollars is going into organizations like Hamas and the PLO and Hezbollah and Lebanon and others. And this is money for operations, money for training, money for even things like paying the widows of suicide bombers. I think... Right. You even mentioned in the book, and I think the perception is that suicide bombing is kind of the cheap man's terrorism, where it's, you know, $150 worth of nails and rat poison and ball bearings and send somebody in to blow themselves up. But 
this is a huge operation that yeah. costs tens of thousands of dollars just yes. to send one guy into a cafe absolutely, somewhere. Absolutely, absolutely. It's a whole organization from top to bottom. You have the, you have the soldiers in the ground, the one that they're... Uh, I would say suckered to go and uh, carry out the uh, suicide bombing, but uh, but then you have the handlers, and you have those who pay them, and you have those who command them, and there are units. Uh, every area in the West Bank and Gaza has its own commander, has units, uh, and they're all getting paid. All the militants, all the combatants, all the terrorists are getting paid with the organization. The population itself is getting paid, not paid cash, but they get provided with all services they need from cradle to grave for free in order to gain, to give loyalty to the terror organizations. In the end, the terror organizations are working and operating among civilians, among population, and the only way this population will let them operate among them is by paying them money. And a lot of this money is coming from Iran, but also some money is coming from the United States yes. and from Western Europe and charities or NGOs. Yes. Um, and I, I wanted to put quotes around the word charities, but they are, in some respects, some of the money is, but very little of the money is funneling to the actual people on the ground who need money. And a yes. lot of it's going, well, it was going directly in the pockets of... Unfortunately, yeah. unfortunately. Uh, both uh, the charities around the United States and Europe um, you know, we all know the names like the Holy Land Foundation and the Interpol in England and CBSP in France were raising millions of dollars for Hamas, and the money was supposed to go to the uh, population to uh, build uh, schools and build uh, hospitals, and uh, and but the majority of the money were diverted to terrorism. Hamas were just controlling the money and were using it to for the bombs, for the missiles, for the uh, explosives. Same way the Palestinian Authority. The Palestinian Authority, in the end of the day, was controlled by Yasser Arafat, who was the head of the PLO, mm -hmm. uh, which is a designated terror organization. And he was receiving support from the European Union and from the United States. You know, the Palestinian Authority was established. Everybody wanted to help the Palestinian Authority, uh, to help the population, and they committed to uh, support it financially. United States... Uh, committed to pay the Palestinian Authority $500 million for five years. They gave the first $100 million, but then when the, uh, they wanted an audit to know what the, uh, yeah. was done with the money, Arafat wasn't able to get an accounting, and they stopped. But the European Union, who committed to pay the Palestinian Authority $10 million a month, simply continued. And they knew that Arafat was pocketed the money, and they knew they are, he's diverting to terrorism, and yet the money was flown into them. Well, even according to your book, even when the money went to food, medicine, schools, hospitals, that was used in many respects for indoctrinating yes. the public. You talk about there was a kind of a moment where IDF and the Israeli security services realized that there was, that at one point maybe this is about Palestinian nationalism, but it had shifted to become more and more about fundamentalist Islam and about, you know, the kind of the right. ideas that are expunged by ISIS and others today. Right. You could have seen suddenly all the mosques are getting built and schools are teaching extreme Islam uh, and hospital conducted by Muslims. Uh, and the whole population was shifted to a very radical uh, Islam. And this enabled the terror organizations to work and to use the, uh, the population either as human shields or as a, a, as a field 
to go and carry out attacks among them. It, you've already mentioned his name, but the protagonist of this book really is uh, not at the beginning of the book, the former Mossad uh, chief, Mayor Dagan, Dagan? Dagan. Dagan. Um, who at the beginning is an IDF officer, but he's not your normal no. IDF officer. He was really innovative. He kind of, you'd say, he thought outside the box is the cliche, but he was a, uh, a a military commander that realized that you couldn't keep doing the same thing over and over again and expect right. different results. <laughs> um, it was interesting to see about when he essentially had the, 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 the leash taken off and sent into Gaza to go after these terrorists. Um, you say in the book there was 850 wanted terrorists when he went in there. And when yeah. he left, there were only nine left. I mean, yes. it's hard to argue was- that success rate. He oh. was uh, he was a tough soldier and soldier, uh, and um, he he got the permission though he was able to work. Otherwise, he wouldn't be able to eliminate all the uh, all the terrorists. Uh, him and um, uh, later on Prime Minister Sharon were uh, inmates in uh, Gaza, and they fought together. Um, and he's known he was known as uh, with a with a uh, dagger between his teeth. This is the. Uh, image of uh, Mayor Dagan um, but yet he was against wars mm-hmm. yet he uh, he could not bear um, uh, losing life and uh, when he moved on to uh, Lebanon and had the, all these fights there he lost a lot of his friends a lot of his soldiers uh, we literally broke his heart and we came he came back home after the uh, battles in Lebanon he told his wife that they are going to become vegetarians because he no longer can bear flesh and meat. Well, and you see that historically where the ultimate warriors are the ones, you know, that are, are the most, the biggest peaceniks yeah. that really re- say, you know, if you need me to, I will, but let's try to right. find another way. Uh, and you mentioned that he was one of the earliest people to be sold on the idea of going after terrorist finance. But even someone like him had a hard time convincing others that money was key. You'd think somebody with that kind of background and that kind of military record would be listened to. I mean, he was eventually. He was in the beginning, right. In the beginning, he was the uh, head of the National Security uh, Council. So he he had a job, but it wasn't the ultimate job. And uh, although he convinced Prime Minister Netanyahu to build this uh, unit uh, that will go after terror financing... And Netanyahu agreed, and they uh, uh, created this unit called Harpoon. This is the name of the book. Um, by the way, in Israel, in order to pick up a name uh, in the, the IDF unit or any uh, military operation, uh, there is a computer that just picks up names. And they picked up Harpoon. It was so unique and so uh, fitting, this unit. When he created this unit, um, it was supposed to be um, representatives from the Mossad and the Shin Bet and the IRS and the uh, uh, Treasury in Israel and the Foreign Ministry, and uh, and they all came together. And he wanted them to come and find a solution how to go after terror financing, and they objected. They think they thought it. I mean, it's the midst of the Intifada. Buses are getting blown up in the air. So many suicide bombings. So many people are getting killed. And he's going after money? Yeah. But then 
in the second intifada when he was appointed to be the head of the Mossad and he was his ally, Ariel Sharon, from... It helps to have friends in high places. (laughs) I love the story. I love the story of, I guess it's the first meeting of the the council, and he's late, and everybody (laughs) else at the meeting is giving him, like, the stink eye because he's not supposed to be late. They're all high-level generals and everybody else, and he goes to the end of the... Can you just pick up the story from there? Because it's so... It tells a lot about his personality. Yeah, he's... uh, There was a high-top meeting with the prime minister and uh, all the commanders and all the heads of the security forces in Israel, and Mayor Dagan uh, was late to the meeting. Um, And in the meeting, I could say that, uh, you know, usually everybody wants to sit near the prime minister because this is where the... uh, um, majority of action is going on, and this is the head of the table. So when Mayor Degan came late into the meeting, um, Prime Minister Ariel Sharon told him, Hi, Mayor, come on in. Come and sit next to me at the head of the table. And Mayor Degan said, Where I sit is the head of the table. <laughs> <laughs> I, right, yeah. And that, that again, um, it's certainly indicative of how his relationship with Sharon was. Yes. I mean, that, that, yes. you know, having that person willing to give full support. He trusted him. Sharon yeah. said, I want someone with a dagger between his teeth. I want a tough commander. I want someone very creative, um, loseless in a sense, to run the Mossad. Mm-hmm. Well, there was a kind of a, a tough line that Dagan had to track between making sure he wasn't affecting the average Palestinian on the ground who wasn't involved in terrorism but still going after the money yeah. of people like Arafat because you know Arafat continued to try to pretend that he was dirt poor but they were funneling tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars into their own pockets and then big houses and everything of the PLO commanders That's right. so you had to make sure I mean this is an American we've talked about the US coming in but the American concern always was how do you take out or bankrupt the leadership without hurting the average Palestinian on the ground. Right. So in the case of Yasser Arafat, it was quite easy because Yasser Arafat were taking, was taking the money to his own coffers. They did not give the money to the population. Uh, indeed, all the support that the uh, donating countries gave the Palestinian Authority was supposed to get to go and build the infrastructure, houses, schools, hospitals, but if you were going into the Palestinian Authority, you could have seen that the people there are living in a dismal state. And when you wonder where the money is going, you would just simply know that it's going to Arafat's pockets. So Ariel Sharon, who did not like Arafat, he refused even to shake his hand, um, agreed with Mayor Dagan that it's time to separate Arafat from his money. And they launched this operation. They sent um, Harpoon units to a country in South America. And they built up an investment company, investment fund, and convinced Muhammad Rashid, who was the financial advisor of Yasser Arafat, to come to this country and to uh, learn about this investment and perhaps even invest in it. And they made it very, very attractive. They showed him what type of interest he can get, what lucrative return he can get on his money, and even personal benefits that he can get if he invests with him. And Muhammad Rajid, who usually very cautious, left all cautious behind, 
and started investing in this company. And indeed, he made tremendous return on his money. Didn't pull the money out. He just kept investing more and more funds from Arafat's money until one day the company disappeared along with Arafat's money. It was simply went into a thin air. Mohammed Rashid suspected it was the Israelis who were standing behind it, but he did not have a proof to prove it. Well, and, and why in the world would you want to publicize how badly you just got duped by the Mossad and hundreds of millions it of dollars? It was very embarrassing. Later on, we heard that Mohammed Rashid just left the Palestinian Authority, ran to Egypt, uh, looking for his life. Yeah, I'm sure he went very, very quickly after that. Um, how did 9-11 change the dynamic here? Because this is happening... For people to know, the, the Oslo agreement is in the 90s, um, and so there are years after that where you have this terrorism going on significantly in Israel, but the United States is not necessarily paying as much attention as we might otherwise, um, but right. then you get 9-11. Yeah. When terrorism hits you, you understand that you have to fight it, that it's not only an Israeli problem anymore, it's in your home. And whereas it was very hard to convince the American to join this fight against terror financing, the American had their own considerations. As you said before, they didn't want the population to get hit or uh, the uh, financial uh, system or the banking system in these countries to get to collapse as a result of taking threats against them. After 9-11, it, it changed. And, um, you know, there's a story that... Um, uh, the Harpoon unit wanted to um, get the attention of the United States, mainly when it came to uh, Hezbollah. And they told them, they went to the United States, they told them, um, listen, they thought that maybe they can get to attraction by saying, uh, which was true, that Hezbollah was counterfeiting the $100 bill, the super bill. And they were literally was sent from a unit to a unit, from an agency to an agency. Nobody wanted to deal with this. Uh, matter. In the end, they told him to go to the Secret Service because this is the agency that deals mm -hmm. with counterfeiting. So Harpoon went to the Secret Service and told them that Hezbollah is counterfeiting $100 bills. And the Secret Service said, um, how much you, how much are counterfeiting? And Harpoon said, as much as $50 million. And the Secret Service said, that's all? <laughs> So Harpoon said it's $50 million in the hands of a terror organization. Do right. you know what a terror organization can do with $50 million? And yet they could not get the uh, attraction of the American government. Well, it was about that time that the Israelis began to set their sights on a really big fish. And in this case, I'm talking about the Arab Bank. And that's, that seems to be the game changer in, in kind of redirecting a lot of attention behind the finance and going after it, specifically in that yeah. case. Because the accounts themselves in the Arab Bank, it was a above board, you know, bank in Jordan that did a lot of legitimate business, but they're able to look and say there are several accounts in here right. that there is a A to B direct lineage to terrorist attack. Absolutely, you know when um, when Hamas originally was. Um when, when Hamas leaders were deported in 1992 to Lebanon, they were adopted by the uh, Iranian Shiites over there, by Hezbollah. And they, um, great, they had a great connections with Iran, with Hezbollah. So when they went back into Israel, they got funding from the Iranian government. 
In addition, the uh, Saudi Arabia government uh, wanted to support the uh, organizations in um, in the uh, West Bank, and um, the uh, Saudi charity was uh, giving a lot of money to the families of the uh, suicide bombers. Um, and Israel Harpoon was watching all this and getting enormously frustrated. There are bank accounts in the Arab Bank in other banks as well, but mainly in the Arab Bank, that millions of dollars are going from Iran into the accounts, from Saudi Arabia into these accounts, and then they're going from this account to the Hamas, to the Islamic Jihad, to Sheikh Yassin, who was the head of the uh, Hamas organization, um, funding terror attacks. So in the beginning, they tried to convince the banks to close down these accounts. But the bank is a Jordanian bank, did not really uh, care, and thought that they're basically immune because there is not much Israel can do against them. Uh, and then Harpoon went and met with officials of the banks and bank managers and tried to convince them to close an account, but nobody agreed. So finally, Mayor Dagan said, if it doesn't go by good, it will go by bad. Yeah. And raided the banks. This Operation Green Lantern. Green Lantern, yeah. In um, the, the money that was seized, I mean, so they raided the banks. Um, the money that was seized was important, but it seems like the intelligence that was gathered during these yeah. operations even yeah. more. It, it basically was the smoking gun showing these accounts right. that were directed. Right. In addition to the money that they took, um, they got a lot of information. They got a lot of documents. Um, that uh, we're indicating where the money is coming from and where it's going, and to show that the Arab Bank was dirt on uh, on aiding and abetting terrorism. Uh, and this information was given uh, to us, to other lawyers, to go and uh, to try to see if there is something to be done uh, against debt organizations in the legal field, against the state that sponsored them, and against the banks that provide them with financial. Well, it also turned out that the way the money was wired from Iran and other places was using Western Union and other kind of organizations. All of a sudden, there's an American connection yeah. to all this, too. And but even though all this amazing intelligence is gathered, the United States wasn't particularly happy no. with Operation Greenland. No, they were very, they were very angry. I mean, the State Department was kind of mild, but George W. Bush was apparently oh, yes, furious was about it. very, that. very critical. I mean, you take, you take a, an IDF unit... You come with soldiers and tanks and surround the banks, and then with a gun you go into the bank and you meet with the bank manager and you're pointing out a gun and telling, listen, come with me to the safe and give me the money that belongs to the organization. And I will tell you what money belongs to the organization because I have all the papers. And then you pull out the money from the safe and in the end give the bank manager a, a receipt. So it's Bank like a robbery, robbery with tanks, yeah. <laughs> I can, I can see how it looked that way. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. 
Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. How important was the Hebrew University suicide bombing or bombing attack as a game changer for the U.S.'s real relationship when it came to working closer together against these terrorist organizations? Yeah, they realized that um, that uh, not only the PA, you know, the the uh, suicide bombing of the Hebrew University was um, uh, a major attack that was done by Hamas, um, and a lot of American victims uh, got killed in the uh, in the attack, um, and um, we were filing lawsuits. I hope this is where you're leading. Mm-hmm. Uh, lawsuits against yeah, the Palestinian Authority on behalf of the victims of the Hebrew University attack. Um, not only on behalf of them, on behalf of many, many American citizens that got killed during the uh, Intifada um, by attacks that were perpetrated or assisted or done by employees of the Palestinian Authority. Mm-hmm. Palestinian policemen, Palestinian security guards, uh, officials of a PLO, uh, and all this was brought in a federal district court in the United States. It, it lightened the uh, responsibility of the Palestinian Authority over these attacks. It really opened the door for two major U.S. laws to be applied to this. One was the Patriot Act, which yeah. most of our listeners will know. I mean, Patriot Act broadens the ability to go, or at least to, to follow terrorist financing using FISA and other types of electronic surveillance. But even kicking back to a a law that was passed in 1992 in response to a lot of the stuff happened in the 80s in Beirut and Lockerbie, Scotland with Pan Am Flight 103, this 1992 Anti-Terrorism Act, which allowed you to sue even if an attack happened overseas, but if U.S. citizens were hurt, no matter where they were, it opened up the American court system Right. This, this is the law uh, that we use to um, to bring lawsuits in the United States on behalf of American victims. The law allows only American mm-hmm. victims to file these lawsuits. Uh, and the lawsuits were brought against the Palestinian Authority, against the uh, Arab Bank, against the National Westminster, against Credit Lyonnais, against UBS, against Liberty's Canadian Bank, American Express Bank, um, uh, against Bank of China. Um, all the and you know what? Even recently, against the social media networks, against Facebook, Twitter, mm-hmm. and Google, all violating this anti-terrorism act for aiding and abetting terrorism, for providing material support to a designated terror organization, which this law prohibits. The the social media stuff is not in the book, but when I when I researched you, I saw like, oh, this is really interesting, and again, yeah. I, I want to talk about that at the end because. That, to me, is kind of a whole new frontier right. of is. moving into things. What, what I love in the book is the first – so I went into this book cold. I, I knew a little bit about kind of terrorism financing, but I didn't know your role in this. I thought you are just another author. And then all of a sudden, halfway mm-hmm. through the book, you're in it. Um, <laughs> and you're brought in to work with not only with Mossad, but also work with members of the IDF and with the top security people. They weren't necessarily at open – to your assistance. I, I, I love, I, don't, I can't remember who it was, but somebody asked you about, like, what was your end game to destroy Hezbollah's <laughs> FICO score, you know, destroy their credit rating. Um, yeah. But at the same time, your organization 
had, I don't want to use the word help. Eh, maybe we can use the word help from Mossad, kind of directing you in certain ways. Yeah, well, um, you know, we were private lawyers when we just started laws, uh, bringing lawsuits against the organizations. It was in the year of 2000, the Intifada, second Intifada broke out. People were getting killed on the street. Blood was spelled on the streets of Jerusalem, of Tel Aviv, and we thought that as lawyers we can go after what terror organizations need most, money. Money directs everything. Money is the oxygen to the terrorism. And if you stop the flow of the money, you can stop the flow of the terrorism. So we started filing these lawsuits uh, against Iran, against Hamas, against the Palestinian Authority, and after two years we got decisions in our favors. $180 million judgment against the Iranian government, um, decision both in Israel and the United States stating that the Palestinian Authority is not a state, they don't have sovereign immunity, you can sue them both in Israel and the United States, um, a lien that we were able to uh, put on Palestinian money for 64 million shekels, which is an amazing amount of money. And then we were approached by um, the Harpoon Unit, which we didn't know were Harpoon Unit yeah. at that time, <laughs> um, that uh, asked us to come and uh, give us, give them a brief of how is it going on, how it happens, how can you bring lawsuits and be effective. So we went to, um, I went to this uh, building in North Tel Aviv, unidentified one, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I entered the room, and there were like three agents sitting there, and I gave them the whole brief, and I told them, this is what we are going to do. We are going to, um, we are suing terror organizations. We are uh, bringing them to court, and we are going to get judgment against them, and in the end, we are going to enforce these judgments. We are going to go after their assets, after their bank accounts, uh, after their real estates, and then there was silence, <laughs> and one of the agents suddenly uh, raised his head and said, so what you're going to do, wreck Hezbollah's credit rating? <laughs> <laughs> New ideas sometimes take time before people are willing to yeah. embrace them. You I... know, in the second meeting that we yeah. had with them, they already gave us information and uh, trusted that this is a real way to go after terror funding. What I love is how quickly trial lawyers and people who do this for a living, whether it's you know going after tobacco companies or going after insurance companies or, or you know everyone with deep deep pockets, realized after I guess 2004 the first case against Arab Bank was brought in New York, and then you had all these fat cat, <laughs> yeah, deep pocketed trial lawyers saying, ooh. That's Thanks. It. This yeah, is great. This is Let's the new area of law. Yeah. yeah, we can make a lot of money from it. Um, I mean, was that something that you thought might be a repercussion of this to show that this was a lucrative? I mean, you're probably you're not in it for the money, clearly. Um, but you had to think if I can show that I can get these tens of not hundreds of millions of dollar judgments, then all of a sudden other lawyers are going to see this as a potential well, way of doing yeah, business. Well, yeah, and other lawyers did. Huh. Um, the problem was that uh, they, most of them, not all, not all of them, but most of them were there only for the money. Mm -hmm. And then they picked their targets. 
they decided to go only after the deep pockets. Uh, not only in terms of uh, financial ability, but the way to enforce their judgment. I mean, we were going after countries like Iran, like right. Syria, that are very deep pockets, but go and enforce a judgment against them. And these lawyers, these tobacco litigation lawyers and all the class action suits lawyers, um, went into uh, into this area just to uh, make a profit. Um, we felt this is not where we want to go. Uh, but, you know, the field is open so everybody can bring this right. sort of lawsuit. So around the same time, in conjunction with some of these early lawsuits, Dagan convinced the prime minister to, the phrase we use here, kinetically target some actual banks during the war in Lebanon in 2006, which you think of all the potential targets of the Israeli Air Force, <laughs> yeah. uh, military targets and artillery and missiles and everybody else, but he wanted resources that could have been used to target military units to actually go and bomb banks, which right. is as novel an idea as you can possibly have. <laughs> um, and so they did. They went after banks in Lebanon that were funding Hezbollah. Yeah, uh, when the uh, war uh, broke out, um, and it's actually, uh, you know, Israel started bombing uh, Hezbollah targets from the air. Uh, they did it because they didn't want to uh, open uh, a ground invention. Uh, they knew that once they send soldiers into Lebanon, there will be uh, death and kills around the area. Um, fighting Hezbollah in Lebanon, Israel had very, very bad experience with that. So Prime Minister Olmer tried to um, only um, find um, attacks and uh, headquarters of Hezbollah for air missiles uh, strikes. Um, but then he ran out of targets also because in the end, Hezbollah were, is a sophisticated organization. They were launching their missiles attacks from underground tunnels and bunkers. Uh, they were taking the launcher out and immediately putting it back in. Um, and days were passing by, and there was no choice but to start a ground invention. So Mayor Dagan came to uh, Olmert and told him uh, that the only way they can bring this war to an end is to eliminate all the cash that Hezbollah had. This cash was. This is not like bombing a Wells Fargo down the street where everything's computerized and there's no like. It's not a lot of money there. Like there. Right. This is a cash operation, so if you can physically destroy the dollar bills that the are dollar there. dollar bills, yeah. yeah. Um, so he told them, listen, we know where Hezbollah keeps its money, in which branches of the Lebanese banks Hezbollah have their money. Let's bomb them from the air. And Olmert agreed, but the IDF refused. Then Khalouz, who was the chief of staff, said, what are you doing? I mean, you're wasting ammunition on banks it yeah. never had. <laughs> uh, but Mayor Dagan insisted, and Olmert agreed. And in the end, they bombed the banks, the banks from the air. And they eliminated cash, really cash, that were uh, kept for Hezbollah, and eliminated the bank records of these accounts. Um, which uh, put Hezbollah in a, a financial crisis, um, which eventually led to 
the end of the war in terms of Hezbollah agreed to a ceasefire and go into negotiation. Well, you said they destroyed about $100 million yeah. in cash. That, that can put a hamper on your ability to fight a war. Well, uh, absolutely. Well, they even went after bankers themselves, too. Yes, yeah. they, went, they wanted to make it personal. Yeah. They wanted to know, to tell people that, listen, it's not okay to run uh, accounts for Hezbollah to provide them financial services. And if you agree to do it, you will be hit. You should know that you are a target. And indeed, the whole uh, um, a paradigm of Harpoon was that there are no white-collar jobs in the terror organization, that if you provide money to a terror organization, you are part of the terror organization, and you are a target as well, perhaps the highest target of them all. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and although this was a very effective strike to end the war, they weren't poor for long because they certainly have... Uh, nation-state backers, but also ways of getting money, whether it's from Iran yeah. or from narco-trafficking in Venezuela. Right. Um, and, and so one of the next steps was uh, kind of jumped off of something earlier you talked about, about the South American investment company. But yeah. one of the most brilliant Ponzi scheme covert actions, I was just laughing when I was reading this <laughs> about, was you, you, you lay it out so well. If you could tell the story a little bit about that, because in the end... It not only had the impact of a financial hit to Hezbollah, but a propaganda and image hit that may have even been more important in the end. Right. So that's a story about Salah Az-Adin, um, a man, a very rich man from Lebanon that uh, wasn't born so rich. He was born in a very... Uh, small neighborhood, poor neighborhood in South Lebanon, <clears throat> and um, uh, decided that he is not going to wind up as his friends. Uh, some of them are in jail, some of them are dead, some of them are terrorists. Uh, he will become a wealthy man. And uh, he invested in the real estate and really became a very um, um, well-to-do guy. Uh, but he was uh, very religious, he came from a very religious family, and he wanted to be identified with the Shiites, with Hezbollah. Uh, he made his all his way to be very, very close to the leaders of Hezbollah by donating. He gave them gifts. Uh, every, uh, uh, every birthday of one of the leaders, he was there. He was uh, taking photos. He was uh, every engagement. He was simply... Uh, supporting the uh, uh, the uh, Hezbollah and the Shiite uh, uh, community in Lebanon, and everybody were approaching him, and he had like a huge castle in the middle of Lebanon. Um, so he was a good target, a good target because he was close, uh, closely identified with the leaders of Hezbollah. He even knew the uh, where um, uh, Munir Hania was uh, in every given moment. Um, it was a good target. So Harpoon, no, it wasn't Harpoon, according to foreign press. <laughs> <laughs> um, one day, this guy, Salah Hezadin, was uh, uh, traveling to Dubai. And um, over there, he was uh, introduced to young, energetic businessmen. 
And they um, told him that they have uh, investment that, uh, and, and persuaded him to come and invest with them. Um, again, they showed him that uh, how lucrative the investment is and what uh, good return he can get uh, for his money. Um, and he trusted them. They were very, very uh, convincing people. Uh, and he started investing with them. He even he went back to Lebanon, opened his own investment fund, and not only invest his own money, but convinced others to invest with them. He went to the leaders of the Hezbollah organization, and they invested money, and he went to the leaders of the Shiite community, and they invested money, and then a lot of the people um, saw that you can go and invest and get like huge return on the money, so they all trusted him because he was connected to Hezbollah, so everything Hezbollah does must be pro-population. And, uh, and indeed, he, the interest went to 40%, and people just kept investing, investing, investing. And um, the way that he secured the investments of the, uh, of the people is by giving them a check for the amount of their investment. He said, anytime you want to cash out, you can just cash the checks. So one day, one of his investors went and cashed $200,000 check, and the check bounced. So he called Salah Hazadin and told him that the check bounced. And Salah Hazadin said, it's impossible. It's impossible. I have billions of dollars in this account. Nothing bounced. He called the bank, and the bank told him that there is absolutely no money in the account. <laughs> and he... He got scared. He called the rest of his banks, and every account was totally emptied out. And then he had a problem. <laughs> <laughs> How do you go and show your face or your body near the leaders of Hezbollah after losing all their money? And he um, and he tried to hide <laughs> and and. Hezbollah found him and, and, and had to uh, give him a trial and everything else, but, but the image now, Hezbollah is looking at all these hundreds of people or thousands of people that invest in all their uh, life earning with this guy and which closely identifies with Hezbollah and, and, and the image and what the uh, uh, perception can be now, uh, it was a disaster for Hezbollah. Well, there's a lot of the average average person in in Lebanon uh, who had now been completely cleaned out because they invested their life savings could still look back at Hezbollah who weren't completely cleaned out, still driving luxury cars, right. still buying $300 head scars, right. still living in these mansions. And, you know, that's not a good image. No. Uh, and you even no. talk about in the book about even media that was pro-Hezbollah, that was very Positive yeah. towards Hezbollah, they really turned against them and they said they're kind it, of uh, the Lebanese made of, <laughs> yeah. and to make it seem too much like the PLO, like how they had been corrupted by money, and I, and I think uh, you know in fundamentalist Islam, <laughs> that's not that's kind of that's a pretty harsh criticism to put saying someone had been corrupted by money. Hundred yeah. percent. You know, the only reason Hamas won the election in uh, 2006 over the PLO is because PLO was corrupt and Hamas was not. So for the population, it's very important to go with a clean party, with someone that doesn't steal mm -hmm. your money. So the entire image of Hezbollah totally changed after this Lebanese made of affair. 
Let me let me switch gears a little bit and ask you about something that our listeners will understand a bit because it's kind of part and parcel, a philosophical underpinning of intelligence operations in that the United States and Israel had a bit of a difference in philosophy concerning the money itself, where the Americans wanted to follow the money and see where it led and try to get to the bigger fish and use it as a trail to get to the high levels. But Israel wanted to lop it off. And anyway, certainly you can understand that, right? Try to stop the immediate threat. If you can stop them from getting $10 million, you might be able to stop several suicide bombings. Whereas the United States, like you mentioned, the Secret Service saying 50 million, eh, yeah. let us know when there's real money there, wanted to follow it further along. Right, right. And and the United States did not have uh, these daily suicide bombings on mm-hmm. the streets, did not have these daily terror attacks. So uh, for AIDS, it's a nice operation just to follow the money and maybe then create a huge operation to stop it. But Israel was fighting for its life. So they had to stop the money. How, how problematic was this? You, talk, you kind of talk in the book about it a little bit of how this kind of difference in philosophy manifested itself. Did this slow down potential partnerships between the two countries? or? Um, you know, in the end, yes. But, but in the end, I think that the, uh, um, Israel is convinced the American to, uh, to join in, in the fight mm-hmm. and, to, uh, and to take action. Um, I mentioned in the book the uh, operation against SWIFT, how the American went and uh, terminated the uh, ability of Iran to use the SWIFT system uh, that, you know, uh, eliminates their uh, way to transfer money around. Um, how United States agreed to uh, impose sanctions on, uh, on Iran uh, and convince the rest of the world to, to join and because only American sanctions are not so useful. Um, and how America, in the end, used this uh, new frontier, new, uh, the fight against their financing, for its own fight mm-hmm. against ISIS. Let me ask you about something I it took me a while to figure out what, what it meant, but you do a good job in explaining it in the book, because I'm not a banker, I don't know this, but how did correspondent banking arrangements change the game? It's, it seems to me... I was reading it, and I'm like, it's a little bit complicated, but then I got along, I'm like, I better learn a little bit about this, because it seemed to be 100% the game-changing moment once you were able to use that to tie everything back to the United States. American laws seemed to be open to everything at that point. Right. So, um, specifically, we're talking about the Lebanese Canadian Bank. This was a bank in Lebanon that uh, had all the accounts for Hezbollah, all their foundations and charities. Um, that Israel was trying to uh, uh, to convince them to close the accounts, but Israel has no influence in Lebanon or over in Lebanese Canadian Bank. So they approached the United States because all the transactions of Hezbollah in this bank were done in dollars, and any transaction in dollar must go through a correspondent American bank. So even though the Lebanese Canadian Bank didn't have a building in downtown New York City, they still had to do work with American right. banks in order to do their job. Absol- yeah, absolutely. Because um, uh, it, to get money from Iran into Hezbollah, it's only in dollars. And, and the financial system works like the banking system works like this, that you must go through an American correspondent bank. Um, the American refused to uh, shut down the uh, ties between the correspondent American banks to the Lebanese banks 
because they're afraid once again to harm the banking system in Lebanon and to bring it to its collapse. The Lebanese Canadian Bank was a major bank in Lebanon. So Mayor Dagan and the Harpoon Unit um, asked us if we can file a lawsuit against Lebanese Canadian Bank and against its corresponding American bank, which was American Express Bank. Which is does have buildings in the <laughs> <laughs> And um, we agreed, we gathered um, many victims from the Second Lebanese War from 2006, Druze, Bedouin, American, Canadian, Israelis, Christians, and filed a major lawsuit against Lebanese Canadian Bank and American Express Bank in New York. And then they both filed motion to dismiss. Lebanese Canadian Bank said that he, well, there is no jurisdiction over it. There is no American jurisdiction over the bank because they don't have offices in the United States. They don't operate in the United States. They don't have business in the United States. There is no way for the United States legal system to catch them and litigate against, against them. And American Express Bank said that as a correspondent, American bank, correspondent bank, they could not know what Lebanese Canadian Bank is doing. They could not know what type of accounts Lebanese Canadian Bank had. Forget about the fact that the accounts were under the name of Martyr Foundation. <laughs> but that was their argument. And the uh, District Court of New York um, accepted the motion to dismiss and, um, and threw out the lawsuit. We filed an appeal, but the courts of appeal decided different. The Court of Appeals said that because the transactions were done in dollars and because they must have gone through a correspondent American bank, American jurisdiction, uh, there is an American jurisdiction of the bank. American court have the capability of hearing this case. Why? Because there is a long-arm statute in the United States that catches even institutions that are not in the United States but do run business in the United States back into the legal system of the United States. And that caused a huge change because now any bank that even though it does not have any representation in the United States can be brought to court in the United States. And as far as it goes to correspondent banks, they became very careful from now on because there is no, it's not worth their while to take a risk of lawsuits for hundreds of millions of dollars on behalf of their victims that perhaps in the next lawsuit will have a different decision. It was, I mean, banks weren't doing this because they supported Hezbollah. They're doing it because it made them money. You know, it's if they got a piece yeah. of the pie here, but if you make it prohibitively expensive... For banks to do business, yeah, even, for you know, all say, the fees, you know what, the money's not worth it. Absolutely, if, if for all lawyers, the fees yeah. that they are getting, it's not worth it because nothing will be equal to a judgment for hundreds of millions of right. dollars. And this is this is what the courts rule in these sort of cases. And nothing is worth having a judgment condemning you for aiding and abetting terrorism. These have implications. I'm not sure that Congress, American Congress, will let any bank that is uh, right. <laughs> adding an terrorism to continue operating in the United States. Well, this judgment actually shut down LCB yes. in 2012. I mean, you, 
Probably not the intention of the U.S. government, certainly, when they, I guess, the Treasury Department named them as a money laundering or money laundering organization. Right. But, you know. They designated them as a terror entity and a money laundering institute, uh, which brought the banks to a close down, shut down. Again, even though the bank was not even in the United States. Yes. Just that pressure put upon it by people like yourself, lawyers fighting court cases in the Department of the Treasury, all of a sudden there were pariahs in the banking community, and that, that's all it took. Yes. Yeah. So let me, let me get to that question, what's next? Because you, you already talked about this idea of going after not just banks, but also social media uh, for supporting, not supporting, right. I, I, it's seriously a doubt that you know the CEOs and people at Facebook and Twitter are like, let's give Hamas a hand today. That's not happening, but the argument you're saying, it doesn't matter. Yes. Um, today, we are aware of a new form of terrorism. Not so many suicide bombings as lone wolf attacks, stabbing attacks, car ramming attacks, people grabbing a, a rifle and started shooting towards 58 people in Vegas and crazy uh, terror attacks like this. And... Um, so you can't really go after the financial infrastructure because it's very cheap. Uh, they act alone, not really alone, but we'll get into this, but they go and grab a knife, doesn't cost anything. They rent a car, doesn't cost anything, and carry out and kill pedestrians and kill innocent people. But there is a common thread between all of these attacks because all these perpetrators, and it was checked and examined and inquired and investigated by all the security services in Israel and the United States and Europe where these terror attacks were taking place, all these perpetrators are connected to the social media, get inciting posts to go and carry out attacks. They themselves use the uh, social media uh, and utilize it in their different operations to the extent that the social media became a tool in the hands of the terror organizations. Um, Hamas, for instance, is using Facebook to recruit militants, to raise funds, to spread their propaganda, to send their messages. Uh, ISIS is using this, the YouTube uh, as a tool to deliver their messages, to send all these beheading videos, to alert people to what they do and encouraging them to go and join them in Iraq and Syria. Um, they all use Twitter to organize this attack and communicate between each other. In the United States, this Anti-Terrorism Act that we talked about prohibits any American company to provide any sort of material support to a designated organization and impose criminal and civil liability on these companies. So we have lawsuits going on against Twitter, against Facebook, against YouTube for aiding and abetting terrorism, financial lawsuits, billions of dollars in damages going on in the federal courts in, uh, United, in New York and California. Um, and, um, and this is the new frontier. There, there is a very good defense for these uh, social media networks. Uh, it's called the Communication Decency Act. This is the law from 1996. It keeps the Internet open and grants blanket immunity to these social media networks for the content that they have on their sites. Um, but I believe that once it goes to the courts of appeal or the all the way to the Supreme Court, uh, this paradigm will have to change, and the court will have to 
uh, choose what has to govern the freedom of speech, which is a very uh, valued asset against the uh, right of the people uh, to live safely. And the idea is not to shut down Twitter or Facebook. It's to force them to to at least self-govern the the stuff that's yeah. on their website. I mean, you're already starting to see that a little bit with, right. you know, hate speech and other things on Twitter, but right. not necessarily as much as it should be. And they might have to worry a little bit more about that as on Facebook with the whole Russia investigation and how they were able to <laughs> be bought off to, to yeah, put all Yeah, because they, yeah. Have, they have the tools to do it. Yeah. They have the algorithm, you know, the same way Facebook knows what type of coffee we drink in the morning. They have the ways, they have the algorithm, and they can monitor these deadly words, these beheading videos, these terrorism posts, and take them down. Because in the end, words can really kill. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you see it all the time, you know, inspired by ISIS. Like, lone, that's the, kind of the common <laughs> phrase now is, this person never traveled to Syria, this person didn't have any formal training, this person doesn't have any kind of direct relationships, but they saw some videos. Right. Or, you know, the, the Zanayev brothers in the Boston Marathon, or the guy just, you know, uh, I guess by the time this post a couple weeks ago who drove the Home Depot truck right. in New York, you know, all they did was watch stuff online. They, you know, it's, right. you know, Major Hassan, when he shot up Fort Hood, had a direct commun- line of communication to Anwar al-Awlaki and emailing back and forth. You don't need that anymore. No. I mean, you can, it's all it's brought to you now. And, and, and please note that this inspiration is not going through the regular media. Mm-hmm. You won't see CNN showing again and again beheading videos yeah. or New York Times putting an ad of recruiting militants yeah. to ISIS. It's only on the social media that think that they are immune. And our goal is to teach them otherwise, to teach them to be accountable and to take responsibility. Well, good luck to that. Um, it, it, you may have other things working for you. I mean, I, are you looking at the Facebook Russia thing as a potential helper? You know, you know kind of- once we pass the motion to dismiss, I guess we'll have Zuckerberg on our witness stand <laughs> <laughs> and other officials from Facebook and other directors from the social media networks and, and get them to explain what their policy is, what they did, how they... Because they are getting involved, you know. They're not simple bulletin board. We know exactly that when they want to get involved in something, they do. They take an approach and they do it. So, um, Is your conversation going beyond the court system and looking at Congress or... Yes, yeah, exactly. we're looking that, into this as well, yeah. yes. Well, good um, luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I, and I think that the more people are informed about this, the more likely it is that there's some kind of movement because, you know, Congress doesn't act unless they have to. Right. And uh, they don't have to unless people are pushing them to. And and I think that, you know, whether it's reading this book, which I highly recommend, or if it's kind of just learning more about, you know, the the impact of not only social media but financial systems, you know, the kind of the basis of this book, on the ability of terrorists to do their jobs, for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. uh I think the more people know, the more people are... It, there seems to be low-hanging fruit solutions to some of this. And yeah. it's kind of stupid to, you know, hey, let's go invade another country to stop terrorism. No, let's just prevent some basic easy stuff to try yeah. to work our way to a solution. So That's um, true. the book is called Harpoon, Inside the Covert War Against Terrorism's Money Masters. The author is Nitsana Darshan Leitner. Um, 
Is there anywhere online that people can get more information about your organization and about what you um, guys do? Yes. So uh, our website called israellawcenter.org. Or if you Google Surat Hadin, you can uh, get to it. Uh, there is a lot of information. Um, we also have a page for Harpoon itself. Uh, and Facebook page and Twitter and everything you just uh, need. Um, and I encourage really people to go on the uh, website and, and join us in our fight. In the end, it's the uh, Western Wall against yeah. the terror organizations. Well, it's a, it's a fascinating book. I highly recommend it. Uh, Nisana, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today here on SpyCast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us.